Happy Sabbath, church. Well, the privilege is mine to sing this morning. I don't know how much I can sing because my stomach is not feeling all that well. But I'm going to try and do my best. We three kings of Orient are Bearing gifts we travel afar Field and fountain, moor and mountain Following yonder star Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Born a king and Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never over us all to reign. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Frankincense to offer have I, Incense own a duty nigh, prayer and praising, all men raising, worshiping God and high. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Myrrh is mine, tis bitter perfume. Breathe a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealing the cold stone tomb. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, hallelujah, sown through the earth and sky. Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Thank you, Marjorie. Our scripture reading this morning is from James 1, verses 12 through 15. James 1, verses 12 through 15. The title of that little, the heading of that little section says, Loving God Under Trials. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, 
When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. My message this morning is entitled The Law of Love, and I just want to make a short, uh, I don't know, uh, announcement, not announcement, that's not the right word, but anyway, how many were here in August when I preached on the Law of Liberty? Of course, that's recorded as a podcast, and if you didn't listen to that, I recommend you go back and listen to that. These two go hand in hand, the law of liberty and the law of love. Now, going back even farther, I spoke here at Marshfield for the first time in recent years, about one year ago. It was in December of last year. I think I did speak one other time 15 years ago or something like that. But, um, But when I spoke one year ago, The title of my sermon was The Toughest Assignment. I think some of you were here. Does anybody remember what that toughest assignment was? Okay, we're going to review quickly or remind you. I'm going to have you turn to the key text from that sermon, which was John 13, verses 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And it was just my opinion, you can argue with me, but I think that is the toughest assignment that the Lord ever gave us that we love one another as much as he loves us. And it's only possible by a totally transformed life, by the Holy Spirit living in us all the time. We cannot do it by ourselves. We are born into sin. We are born selfish. Um, But that ties into what I want to talk about this morning, the law of love. Is coming back to the similar topic, but looking at it a little different. When I first began to explore the issue of love, I found myself overwhelmed with the possibilities. I knew as a Christian that love was central to God's plan to heal humanity. But most of what I read talked about love as some amorphous force or some warm fuzzy. Um, it just didn't seem to make sense. The initial problem I had with exploring the various parameters of love was trying to distinguish between what was really love and what its counterfeits are, and then trying not only to experience love but to understand it. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to go into its counterfeits, but we're going to look at what love really is. The thought that love was actually a universal law or a design law, a principle on which life itself is based 
was so far from my mind that I couldn't initially even comprehend the possibility. But as I began to understand the other universal constraints or laws that God has, such as the law of liberty that I talked about back in August, the law of love became more and more into focus. As I said back in August when I talked about the law of liberty, we found out that violations of the law of liberty always damage and destroy every time. It's an inescapable consequence. We talked briefly about the life of a woman named Shirley and the consequences she endured as her husband violated her freedoms. I think intuitively that we all understand that a violation of the law of liberty is a violation of the law of love. That makes sense, doesn't it? But I think we must also grasp the fact that the opposite isn't necessarily true. Not all violations of the law of love are violations of liberty. It is a whole different area that we need to explore. And I'm going to start out this morning by sharing a little story of a couple named Sam and Wilma. They had been married for 43 years. They had three adult children and were now supposed to be enjoying their retirement. Unfortunately, their marriage was on the verge of collapse, not because of infidelity, physical abuse, or permanent or persistent violations of liberty, but rather because of failing to love, failing to actively think about the good of the other before acting, failing to put the other first. Both Sam and Wilma were active church members and would never have thought of doing something that others would consider a flagrant sin, but they all too often failed to do the things that would be regarded as love. Both were constantly seeking to get their own needs satisfied rather than seeking to meet the needs of the other. They had fallen into the trap of indifference, a relationship in which they no longer cared about the other. Instead of simply seeking to love each other, they sought only to get something from the other. And they were miserable. Their hearts were slowly hardening, and they were emotionally and spiritually dying. Love is not simply about avoiding injurious activities. It is about choosing to purposefully act in an uplifting and selfless way. Nor is it simply doing what feels good. Rather, love involves doing what is actually good, regardless of how it feels. Doing what is in the best interest of the other and giving of oneself to the other for love is selfless. When we really love, we begin to live. When we stop loving, we begin to die. I'm going to give you another short story or illustration. Jenny was nervous. She and her husband, Phil, were on their way to take their parents out for lunch. Jenny's 83-year-old father had been suffering from Alzheimer's dementia for several years. As her father's mental abilities declined, his behavior had become more bizarre and could even become very irritating to others. How would Phil, her husband, deal with her father 
if dad didn't behave today? Well, as soon as they picked up Jenny's parents, her father began asking Phil questions about his car. What kind of car was it? What year was it built? What kind of gas mileage did it get? All reasonable questions the first time. He repeated the questions more than 10 times in less than 15 minutes. But rather than get irritated, Phil answered each question with a cheerful, calm, patient demeanor, showing real concern and compassion for Jenny's father. Phil gave of himself. He did what was right because it was right, not because of how he felt. Phil revealed love in action. The law of love is the law of life. The principle upon which all life in the universe is based. Think about it. In 1 John 4, 8, scriptures tell us what? Familiar with that verse? That God is love. And if God is going to create a universe based on who he is, what is he going to do? Design everything he creates to be in harmony with himself, with the law of love. This circle of beneficence in which all things give freely to others. Even in nature, we witness this cycle where the sun warms the oceans, which creates the clouds, which in turn forms rain, which falls on the land to make the crops prosper. And it forms the lakes and the rivers and the streams, which eventually flow back to the ocean to begin the circle all over again. Because everybody in the circle keeps giving. Think about the plants. Doesn't matter what kind of plant you can think of. Every plant out there produces oxygen, which it gives, which is necessary for animals and humans to live. And humans, in turn, produce carbon dioxide, which they give, and it is absolutely necessary for the plants to live. So nature continues to teach us about this circle of giving. The law of love is the law of life. And even in nature, when giving ceases, so does life. A pool of water that stops flowing And releasing its water soon becomes a stagnant pond or pool. And soon almost everything in it dies. When we cease to give our breath to the benefit of the plants, well, you tell me, what happens when we stop breathing? We die. It is through giving that we live. Those who accept and apply the law of love flourish because they are in harmony with God's laws. But when we stop giving, we cut ourselves off from the channel of God's blessings and the unavoidable result is eventually death. What about the flowers? They give their pollen to the bees and the bees fertilize the flowers and the fruit trees and thus increasing their fruit. Trees bestow their nuts on the squirrels, and the squirrels eat, spread, and bury the nuts, thus increasing the number of trees. 
The law of love is the law giving the very law of life. The world as it came forth from the hand of God was perfect. All nature fully revealed the law of love. But once sin entered the world, an antagonistic principle infected nature and obscured the pure, the, the pure revelation of God's love. Once sin, with the, its principle, which is essentially selfishness, marred God's love of nature, it became necessary for God to provide his written word in order for us to see and understand the divine principle clearly. Those who study nature unaided by the word of God will often fail to see his hand, and instead they will see the infection that has marred his beautiful creation. Naturalists often describe the infection by the famous phrase, anybody ever heard the phrase, survival of the fittest, which essentially boils down the principle of selfishness. Charles Darwin was the one that coined this phrase, but he did not invent the principle of survival of the fittest. He merely observed it in nature. And this selfish motive that had scarred God's handiwork, and he failed to understand the true meaning of what he saw as an infection versus of the way things are supposed to be. Likewise, psychiatrists and psychologists who study human behavior invariably find themselves focusing on the infection that is destroying humanity and conclude that it is natural. Sigmund Freud, some of you have heard of him, having given up his belief in God, made this tragic mistake when he concluded that the central force in human beings is what he called the id which is simply the infection of selfishness. Without God's written word to enlighten the mind and put it in proper context, we observe in human nature, many people believe that the infection that is destroying the human race is simply normal. And therefore, since it's normal, they think it's an acceptable part of our being. But the infection of selfishness, which is essentially the infection of sin, is not a normal part of our being. It was not meant to be. It was not that way in the beginning. Let me give you another illustration. Imagine living in an isolated village in Africa in which the entire population is infected with the AIDS virus. And everyone is so uneducated that they have never heard of the disease. But every child is born infected with it, and every adult suffers from its devastation. Everyone is sick and dying. But the village is so cut off from the rest of the world that as the years go by, new generations forget what human life was like without the AIDS infection. Among them arise naturalists who observe human life. Might they incorrectly conclude that the AIDS infection is a natural part of their human condition? Might they and the population as a whole come to believe that is just the way it's supposed to be? But it's not. It's not supposed to be that way at all. 
Paul talks about this. He says all nature is infected. In Romans 8.22, says all nature groans under the weight of sin. And viruses such as the AIDS virus and many others offer a perfect example of the effects of sin. They were not a part of God's original creation. How do we know? Because of the law of love. Viruses are based solely on a biological form of selfishness. A virus is a small piece of genetic code, DNA or RNA, and it has no ability to give anything, but can only take for itself. When a virus enters a living host, like us, when we get a cold or the flu, it assumes control of the machinery of the cells and causes them to produce more and more of the same virus, self-replication, self-exaltation. And as it does this, it does it so extensively that if it is not stopped, if it is not checked, it will kill the host. And, by likely extension, eventually kill itself if it runs out of hosts to infect. What an accurate example of the unimpeded course of sin in our lives. But we also have another example of the way God works in our cellular structure. Think of your white blood cells. They are part of God's creation, and they operate on the principle of love, of self-sacrifice. When an infecting agent such as a virus enters our body, our white blood cells willingly sacrifice themselves in order to save us. What a contrast, even on the cellular level, between love and selfishness. Human beings are infected with sin, with selfishness. And it is God's plan to remove the selfishness as the central motivating principle in the human mind and to restore our minds with the law of love and liberty as its central operating principle. And unless this healing of the mind eventually occurs, the inevitable end result is death. You're all familiar, I think, with Romans 6.23 that says the wages or consequences of sin is death. I would like to reread James 1, what we had in the scripture reading this morning. James 1, starting with verse 13, going through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. While selfishness 
currently infects all humanity, God did not leave us to struggle helplessly against the sickness. No, he sent us both his written word and, as we talk about at this time of the year, he sent his son. He sent his son to reveal his plan to heal us and restore us to the original condition. By reading the text sent by our creator, we can enhance our ability to distinguish between the infection and what God originally intended our condition to be. We can then make intelligent decisions to cooperate with him for healing and transformation. Have you ever wondered why God warned Adam that if he ate from the tree, he would die? It was again because of the law of love, the principle of love on which life is based. When one is out of harmony with this law, the unavoidable consequence is death, and not because of some angry, vengeful deity, but because violating the law of love cuts us off from the very source of life. It cuts us off from the channel of God's blessings, and the result is that life simply cannot continue. Just as a pool of water isolated from its source will stagnate and become lifeless, so too the human mind, severed from God, will perish. Adam and Eve received everything on our planet except for one tree and its fruit. God reserved the fruit of the tree in it for himself, and he instructed Adam and Eve not to partake of it. But he gave them everything else on the earth as a possession. If the first couple valued God's love and wanted to demonstrate their love, would they steal from him? Would they take what didn't belong to them? Or if they loved God, would they respect his possession and refrain from eating the fruit that wasn't theirs? Love means doing what's in the best interest of other people, regardless of how one feels. It is the principle of giving. And stealing from someone violates that principle. Stealing is about the opposite of love, the opposite of giving. It's taking, grasping, hoarding. And as soon as Adam broke the law of love by taking for himself and grasping for self-exaltation, he experienced change. Instead of experiencing a higher, nobler state of existence like the serpent claimed that he would, Instead, he experienced fear. He became afraid, and his own ability to love was severely damaged. When Adam ate the fruit, he severed his unity with God, and in the process, he chose the principle of self-exclamation and selfishness. And it replaced the law of love in his mind, closing it to the abundant and continual flow of love from the heart of God. God still loved Adam. But that love no longer flowed freely 
from Adam's heart. Once Adam broke the law of love, his entire character changed. Self-seeking replaced the principle of self-sacrificing love, giving beneficence, and immediately he was more concerned with himself, his situation, his problems, and his circumstances than by anything else. Fear overcame him. His reason was imbalanced, his conscience bruised, and his will now came under the control of his feelings. The principle of the survival of the fittest now dominated Adam's mind, and he immediately ran and hid and tried to blame Eve for his condition. I think almost all of you are well familiar with the story that's played out in Genesis chapter 3. Adam had lost the ability to love freely, and without divine intervention, his condition was indeed terminal. Any violation of the law of love produces an immediate cascade of predictable consequences. Like knocking over a series of dominoes, once the first domino falls, the rest immediately follow. Inevitable damage occurs. And the first consequence is that it damages our own ability to love. We no longer naturally seek to give to others but instead we find ourselves driven to get for ourselves. Breaking the law of love not only damages our faculties of reason and conscience, but also begins convincing us or convicting us of wrongdoing. We experience such self-incrimination as fear, anxiety, and insecurity causing us to lose the ability to think clearly And instead of recognizing that the problem is in us, we are often tempted to think that it's God's fault. And we try to hide ourselves from him. We fear him. Instead of realizing that we are sick and dying, many actually believe that it is God that wants to punish us. Such misjudgment of a God causes us to close our minds to the channels of love flowing from him. Without divine intervention, our condition is terminal. And therefore, God did the only thing that he could do. He promised later in Genesis 3 that he would send a Savior. And eventually, he did send his Son to restore trust, to remove fear and doubts from our mind so that we might freely cooperate with God for our healing. We must also remember that even if God's love had previously been flowing through us, if we come to a point in our lives where we stop loving, stop giving ourselves to others, our hearts and minds will slowly harden, become increasingly selfish, and we will ultimately die. We see this, of course, demonstrated in the life of Adam. Imagine for a moment the water that is flowing through the pipes of your house. The water is relatively pure and clean and abundant from either a municipal supply or from a well. 
But what happens to the water in those pipes if you shut off all the spigots and never let the water flow again? Regardless of how pure the water was when it entered your home, it will now stagnate, not because the water supply has shut itself off or has become impure, but because the spigots are closed, which prevent any more pure water from flowing into your home. Likewise, when we stop loving and giving, we close the heart and the mind and isolate ourselves from God's limitless love. It is only by receiving his abundant love and allowing that love to flow through us that we grow and thrive. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Why is sacrificing one's life the greatest love? Because to give one's life to save another is the ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? Love is the process of giving, the exact opposite of taking, grasping, and self-seeking. While people may cling to many things, when death comes calling, most people would gladly surrender all of their life's accumulation of possessions in order to have a chance to still live. So when someone is willing to surrender his or her life for another, then there is nothing that he or she will hold back. Love has won. Love has replaced selfishness. The principle of selfishness wages war with the principles of love in our minds. Self-seeking, self-promotion, self-exaltation oppose God's methods of love and liberty. God created our planet and humanity in particular as the showcase of his love, his method of running the universe. We can understand the law and love of love and liberty fully only when we see it at work in intelligent living beings. Reading his law on stone or on paper will never reveal its true nature. It must be seen in action. In recent years in the news, you've probably heard of different legal battles over the display of the Ten Commandments in public areas. And I've heard some people proclaim that the Ten Commandments are the final word on God's law. But such individuals misunderstand his law. The Ten Commandments, though precious and much needed, are but only a transcript of God's law of love and liberty. In some ways, a dim reflection of the fullness of what his law is. Let me try to explain it this way. The Ten Commandments are much like your DNA code. Yes, you can document a person's specific DNA sequence, offering us an exact, accurate transcript of most of the aspects of an individual. 
But would we ever know the fullness of a person, the very essence of them, their personality, the sound of their voice, the sound of their laughter, the brightness of their smile, the warmth of his or her love, just by studying their DNA code? Likewise, the Ten Commandments are a dim reflection of God's law of love and liberty. Just studying the Ten Commandments will never reveal the fullness of God's law. Instead, we must see it displayed in human lives. God created humanity to be the repository for his living law of love. And it was only after the human race fell and the divine law of love was no longer written in the mind that it became necessary to put it in stone as an attempt to awaken us to our very sickly state. But Paul talks about in several places in the New Testament, Romans 7, pretty much the whole chapter, specifically between verses 9 and 13, about how the law was to point out the sin in our lives, that we would turn back to Christ, that we would see Christ. He talks about it also in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, talking about how the law is a tutor to teach us the right ways and show us Christ. But it is God's plan to restore his law of love and liberty into our actual minds. Regarding the new covenant, the writer of Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, states a verse that you're well familiar with, Hebrews 8.10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Even though sin mars creation and but dimly reflects the love that exists in the heart of God, we can still see his love displayed in our parents and in our children, our sisters and brothers, our friends, our church family. Often we refer to this type of love as brotherly love. In human terms, it's the closest we see on a daily basis of godlike love. And this is because God designed the family to reflect the relationship that exists between the Godhead. God designed the family to show what it's supposed to be like between the Godhead and his creation. Parents are to have love between them that is so intimate, so close, so private, that the two actually come into unity of mind, heart, and purpose. They become trusted and valued confidence and friends, and because of, but because of selfishness, even the most harmonious marriage is but a, dump, or a dim reflection of the love and unity that is among the Godhead. Outside the parental unity are the children, who are the outgrowth and expression of the love of the parents, As the parents' love for each other grows, they join themselves together and share of themselves to create their offspring. This new creation and outgrowth of their love becomes the object of their attention and their affection. The parents then devote 
their, all their resources to the health and welfare of their children. This reflects the constant care of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in providing for his creation. And just as parents will sacrifice themselves to save their children, so too God has sacrificed himself to save us. Within the marital relationship, God designed the experience of unity to be filled with the abiding peace, constant trust, intense feelings of joy and pleasure. Yet he never intended such feelings to be an end in themselves but rather the beautiful result of self-sacrifice, mutual sharing, right-doing, and having concern and love one for another. Once Adam failed in his original purpose as the pinnacle of creation, the showpiece for God's law of love and liberty that would reveal to the onlooking universe his methods and principles, there was just one more step that God could take to reveal himself and his living law. God became one with us. And in human form, Jesus was the repository of his law, demonstrating its height and depth and breadth and endlessness. Christ displayed God's methods of governing the universe. Through his life, he revealed God. I would like to reread what was read this morning as the call to worship, um, but I would like to read it out of a paraphrase called The Remedy. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. He from whom all things began, who is the very source of all life, is he whom we have heard and seen with our own eyes and touched with our own hands, and he is the word of life that we proclaim. This original, unborrowed, underived life appeared on earth, and we have seen him and testify to him. It is this preexistent, eternal life which was with the Father and is the source of all life that has appeared to us, and it is this life that we are sharing with you. We are telling you the truth we have seen and heard so that you may join in the unity of friendship and love. And our unity is our companionship and oneness with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to share the truth and bring more people into this fellowship and thus make our joy complete. In conclusion this morning, it is God's plan to take humanity damaged by sin, born with natural inclinations towards selfishness, and restore in us his law of love and liberty. The Lord does not simply want to put his law in the mind just as an idea to be believed, but rather to recreate in its fullness his image as a living conduit of his love. His law of love will permeate our entire being and become a wellspring of all our actions. He seeks to elevate us from our fallen state of selfishness with our slavery to fear, insecurity, and feelings 
so that we will once again occupy our noble station in God's order. Removing the selfishness from our minds, he will restore in us the living law of love and liberty. Then we will once again stand as intelligent, self-governed, self-sacrificing friends of God as the living repositories of his great law of love and liberty. Truly, he will restore us and live on us, and we will become the dwelling places of the living God. Closing this morning, our closing song is going to be one that you just listen to instead of sing. It's going to be played for you. It is a Christmas hymn that many of you know and love called O Holy Night. The season seems so short, especially this year. I I picked this song because it's one of my favorites, and I know a lot of you like it. I love the beauty of the music, but I also want you to listen closely to the words, especially to the second stanza, where it says, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. And this will be sung by an 11-member a cappella group called Voctiv. Sure. 
Norads. Father in heaven, on this morning we are all acutely aware that we were born into sin and selfishness, of our weakness, that we are utterly dependent on you for life. We invite you anew this morning by your mighty cleansing spirit to come and fill us and continue the process of healing us and restoring us to the full law of liberty as the operating principle in our thoughts and our minds. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus.